Hi, welcome to Stride. We're a free network for women who are starting their career or changing their career. As well as hosting this podcast, we share articles and advice on our website, and we hold quarterly meetups with panel discussions, speed mentoring, and networking. At least we will when the coronavirus restrictions on London are lifted. When you're starting a career, whether you've known what you want to be since you were little or if you're just figuring it out, there can be so many things to navigate. Sometimes it's hard to know what questions to ask, especially if you're the first person in your family to take a new career path. That's where Stride comes in. We seek out inspirational, successful women across a range of fields and ask them about their experiences so you can learn about the challenges and highlights of different industries. Whether you want to be an author, a lawyer, a doctor or a plumber, we've spoken to someone who can inspire and empower you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Hi everybody, I'm Sophie and today I'm excited to introduce you to Helen McCarthy. Hello, lovely to be here. Helen is a lecturer in modern British history at the University of Cambridge and is a fellow of St John's College, which she joined in 2018 after nine years at Queen Mary University of London. She's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the Higher Education Academy, as well as being managing editor of the Journal of 20th Century British History. Helen's second book, Women of the World, The Rise of the Female Diplomat, won the Best International Affairs book at the Political Book Awards 2015. And her next book, Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, is out on April 16th. Thank you, Helen, so much for joining us. Can't wait to hear about how you achieved all of these amazing things. (laughs) So it would be great if you could start out by giving us a little bit of information about what your day-to-day looks like. I imagine a lot of our listeners who maybe are at university or about to start university and love the subject that they want to study might think that academia is a really attractive prospect for them. Could you talk us through a day in the life of a lecturer? Sure. Well, the day in the life of a lecturer is very varied. It depends whether we're talking about during term time or in the university holidays. So in term time, what I tend to be doing from on a daily basis is giving lectures, uh, maybe running a seminar. I might be meeting with students one-on-one to give them some feedback on their work or to discuss their dissertation projects, perhaps. I'll probably have committee meeting to go to, perhaps planning teaching or thinking about some other administrative issue. I might be prepping lecture notes for the next day. I might be marking some essays. I might be replying to email. There is a great deal of replying to email in my job. If it's not term time, then I'm probably getting on with my research, which could involve going to an archive. As a historian, I spend quite a lot of time in archives and libraries. I might be writing books or writing articles, um, or I might be going to a conference to present my research to other scholars in the field. Wow, it sounds like you use so many different skills just going through the cycle of term time and holiday. And it seems like you have a lot of different ways of working that you manage. Is there one area of work that you naturally find comes easier or things that you've had to work hard to feel comfortable in? I think most academics plump for the career because they really love their research and they really love the intellectual challenge. And that's what draws them in because the training to be an academic involves doing a PhD, which is three or four years of intensive research where you're working on one particular problem, a problem which really fascinates you and excites you. So I think that's something which perhaps sits at the core of the academic career. 
But teaching is something which all academics love to do as well. And I found it relatively easy to sort of make the transition between doing my research and then sort of trying to translate my research into exciting lectures, seminars, where I could really kind of convey some of the passion and excitement that I feel about history and about thinking about the past to my students. I think in terms of, you know, working out how to operate effectively in the administration of the university and in some of the more corporate managerial aspects of the university, because universities are sort of these big complex organisations, perhaps is an area where there's more to learn. And do you have a lot of that more corporate side of things? You mentioned doing loads of emails. Is that where that comes into play? So one sort of component of the job, if you've got a lectureship um, in a university, is administration. So, you know, what's quite distinctive about universities is that they're not run by professional managers. They're meant to be run by academics themselves. And the university may be a kind of more commercially environment in that respect. But having said that, of course, you know, we do have to uh, learn how to operate efficiently. We have to think about the service that we're providing to undergraduates. I think particularly since the shift to £9,000 tuition fees, I think there is a much stronger focus on, you know, students' expectations and needing to, you know, ensure that we are kind of providing the best education that we can possibly provide. So, I mean, the administration aspect of the job can span, you know, range of activities from the way that you might be um, responding to students needs individually but also how you might be contributing to outreach activities equality and diversity and inclusion and the policies that, that universities might want to put in place there climate change how the universities can be more um, environmentally friendly in the way they are run or you know the whole kind of range of, of issues facing any big organization it's something that academics also have to um, engage in very closely it sounds like there are a load of opportunities for you to have a huge impact on not only your students' lives, but your colleagues' lives as well. What's the most rewarding part of your job, do you think? I think for me, it is the intellectual stimulation that I get, not just from doing my research, but also by talking about my research to students, to colleagues, and um, participating more generally in the research culture of the university. What's wonderful about universities and a big university like Cambridge is that there are so many researchers doing groundbreaking work across a range of disciplines, arts, humanities, social sciences, the sciences and medical research. And it's very exciting to feel that you're part of that and to feel that you're all contributing together to the advance of human knowledge. And that sounds perhaps a little bit kind of pious but I mean it it is what makes the university I think quite a unique environment in which to work that sense of collective intellectual endeavor. It sounds incredible it sounds like you have an amazing community at your back as well. I think that universities can be very um, supportive inclusive you know participatory collegial sorts of environments but of course, like all big organisations and all workplaces, there are tensions as well. There can be misunderstandings. There can be turf wars internally between departments, between different parts of the university. And I think also because universities are a very complex organisation, 
sometimes different agendas are not necessarily always pulling together harmoniously and we you know we have to work out how to sort of rub along together harmoniously like in any other big organization absolutely and i guess one of the things that you hear as well as the kind of um, office politics side of academia is that there can be a lot of pressure on academics to publish their work and to meet deadlines and things like that how have you found the challenges of academia you're right one is constantly being judged on the quality of your work. And we, we have this thing called peer review. So if you want to publish your research in a journal or with an academic press, which is what you want to do because you, know, you want to get other scholars in your field across the world engaging with and looking at your research. But in order to do that, uh, you have to submit your work to a journal. It will be read by a number of people in your field and they will come up with a verdict as to whether your research is interesting enough, significant enough, groundbreaking enough to be published. And sometimes those peer review reports that come back to you can be quite brutal. They can be devastating. Uh, rejection oh, is just part of the job. Of course, it's wonderful when your article is accepted or when you get a, the offer of a book contract from a prestigious university press, you know, that's a wonderful feeling as well. But I think you do have to have a certain amount of resilience emotionally to be able to handle those moments of rejection where you just feel, huh, no one likes my research. Why am I doing this? What's the point? <laughs> oh, it sounds really tricky. I don't think that I would be anywhere near resilient enough to handle that. It sounds as well very different to the experience that anyone would have at the start of their academic career if they do choose to go to university. Was there a tipping point where you realised what pressures of academia were going to be or did you feel like you went into it with your eyes quite open? I decided to take a few years out after my first undergraduate in history and I really loved it. But I wasn't 100% sure that I want to be an academic. So I worked for a think tank for a couple of years in London, which was a great experience. And I learned a lot from that. But it did, I think, crystallize in my own mind that I did want to do a PhD, that I did want to develop my own research project and gain a real kind of depth of understanding and, and expertise. And, and I wanted sort of the discipline and rigor of doing a PhD. And I think that once I started the PhD, I did become much more aware of the career and I was sort of much more observant, I think, of what was going on in the academic labour market, much more aware of how the career was structured. So I think that by the time I finished my PhD, I was fairly well prepared. I was fairly clued up, I think, on what I needed to do in order to succeed. But it requires a huge amount of luck. And I, I was very lucky. Did you have anyone who was guiding you or a, a mentor? I know when people are doing PhDs, they often have a supervisor or a pair of supervisors. Was there someone who particularly guided you? Yes, my PhD supervisor, a very distinguished historian called Pat Fain, uh, was brilliant. And I had various other teachers at my university who supported me. But I think actually what was probably most important for me while I was doing my PhD was to have a really brilliant peer group. And I had a lovely network of friends in London who were also doing their PhDs at that time. And we had a little postgraduate seminar and a little postgraduate network. 
And it was very, very important to have that support structure in place and to have a sense of, you know, there are other people who are going through all of this at the same time. We can share tips, we can share our fears, um, we can be happy for each other's successes, and we can be, you know, supportive and sympathetic when things don't work out. And actually, I think that's probably the most important thing to have in place when you're doing your PhD. That sounds really helpful and healthy to have around you at a very stressful time. Is it a support network that you've carried forward in your career? I think that our support networks change over time. I have lots of wonderful colleagues here in Cambridge. I had lovely colleagues, Queen Mary as well. I think once you become a parent, you inevitably sort of reach out to other parents because it's nice to be able to kind of have a bit of a moan occasionally with people who you know are going through some of the same things as you are going through. I think the exact form that your support network takes probably shifts over time. But I think in academia, one does build lifelong friendships, uh, which do endure over time. It's sort of wonderful to be able to lean on people who understand the career and understand the pressures that academics uh, face. That sounds really fantastic to be able to be so reflective as well about how you've been leaning on people and giving and receiving that essential support. Yeah, you've talked a lot about how you got to the point you're at now. And obviously, you've had so many achievements that are all so fantastic to me. As someone who's outside of academia, I looked at your bio online and was like, wow, Helen has done everything. (laughs) What's the biggest achievement to you or what's meant the most to you? I think what I'm most proud of is not any particular book or any particular prize or success with applying for a grant. I think it's actually being able to keep going in my career during the period when I was off on maternity leave and then coming back with very young children. So I had my first daughter in 2010 and my second daughter in 2012. And so there was a sort of five-year period, I would say, where life was very intense. I had these sort of young children who you know, were very demanding. And it was also a kind of crux moment in a sense in my career. I was sort of moving out of the early career postdoctoral era stage into the sort of mid-career stage, which I think is very important for when you know, you're trying to establish yourself in the field, you're trying to get a bit more visibility for yourself in the field. I mean, I was extremely well supported. So I had fabulous workplace nursery at Queen Mary. My husband is a very hands-on father. We had grandparents living not too far away. Um, I had a, quite a lot of flexibility in terms of the hours that I was teaching. But nonetheless, I think looking back, I was able to be quite smart in how I made the most of the opportunities that I had and the time that I did have. So I think you have to be quite strategic about what you say yes to and what you say no to. So I got very good at saying no to things and got very kind of smart at saying yes to the things which would really count, you know, the things that would really help me to build my career. So, I mean, a good example would be becoming editor of a journal in my field, 20th Century British History. And I took that on at the stage when my children were still quite young. But actually, it's a job that, in a sense, gave me quite a high profile in the field. But it was one that I could do from my laptop. 
you know it didn't actually involve huge amounts of travel or me Idea. Being, you know having to kind of go anywhere but it was something which I could you know I could do it from my laptop at home late at night early in the morning I think sort of looking back I'm quite pleased that I did manage to kind of keep that momentum going at what was quite a crucial time you hear a lot about the art of saying no and uh, strategic yeses. Um, there's so many different articles and books and YouTube videos and everything else about how to do it right. What worked for you when you were trying to develop that skill? I, like many women, I think, am naturally a people pleaser. I don't like saying no. I'm sort of generally quite enthusiastic about most things. If, you know, if someone wants me to do something, I really want to do it if I possibly can. But I overcommitted myself. I was completely strung out. My childcare wasn't in place. I was burning the candle at both ends, if that is that the phrase, I can't remember. And I really suddenly thought, okay, stop, this was a bad idea. I think the worst case was when I was I'd agreed to give a paper at a conference in Oxford and I think my husband was away for work. Both sets of grandparents were not available. I had to get myself to Oxford and back again within the course of about four hours from London in order to pick up my children from school. And of course, my train was then delayed. It was a good moment where I just sort of stepped back and said, right, I'm not going to do this again. I should just prioritise by saying yes to things that I know I can deliver on and I know will be good for my career. And all of the other things, well, you know, if I was a entirely sort of economic free agent with no responsibilities to anyone else, <laughs> I would be able to say yes to everything. But we all have responsibilities and commitments elsewhere. So I think it was just kind of recognising that and also just, I think, being kind to myself about turning things down. Whenever I've said no to something, I've always immediately felt a huge sense of relief afterwards. I can imagine. And it seems like if you work in academia and you're doing a lot of research as well as potentially um, lecturing and organising seminars and going to conferences, it seems like there's a lot of potential kind of time that you're at work and the time that you're at home to become quite blurred. How have you found keeping your work life and your home life separate enough that you can keep a good balance? I think it's a huge challenge. It's a challenge for people in in all sorts of professions. In academia, it is the case that one can feel under pressure. Uh, Even if you can't get yourself to the library, you somehow ought to be contemplating and reading and considering your research. I mean, I, for example, hardly ever read novels because read novels makes me feel guilty. I feel as though I ought to be reading something which in some way relates to my research or in some way will burnish my intellectual credentials further. And that's awful. I mean, that's a terrible thing because there are so many wonderful novels out there that I ought to be reading. So I think it is difficult to make that switch. And in a way, because often academics really love their research and are very excited by it and it can feel like a labour of love. So I think we have to be very disciplined with ourselves to say no, you know, we need to step back, we need to compartmentalise sometimes uh, and ensure that we have, you know, a hinterland beyond academia. Do you find there are other things that you can do to relax that are kind of 
I guess, that perfect marriage between reading for work and reading for leisure. Are there any um, like podcasts or anything like that that you do feel you can enjoy without feeling guilty? <laughs> or is it very much like I should be in work mode, I should be switched on? Mm. I probably shouldn't overstate this. I mean, I, like everyone, watch a fair amount of Netflix <laughs> in the evening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the really positive things to change in academia since I've been in the career is the level of public engagement that academics do. So when I started out, there wasn't a particular expectation that you would be good at talking to the media or that you would write books for a broader audience or that you would think about how your research might be relevant to contemporary debates or or public policy issues. I think now there's much, much greater scope and opportunity for academics to do that. And also to do you know, really creative things like collaborating with artists or with musicians or producing pieces of theatre. So in terms of that sort of broader public space in kind of cultural consumption, there's so much that we can listen to, read. Um, I mean, I love uh, listening to Women's Hour and there are always lots of very, really, really interesting people, including a lot of academics who work on different aspects of women's lives and questions about gender and about equality. You know, I love listening to Radio 4. There are some documentaries on pretty much every week based on really, really fascinating research or really kind of expert knowledge. You know, there are endless interesting festivals and book festivals where there are people talking engagingly and imaginatively about their research and their knowledge. No, I think there's a wonderful world out there of culture and for for the mind. Absolutely. And you mentioned collaborating with artists. And um, when you working on Double Lives, I understand you worked with the photographer Leonora Saunders to put together an exhibition about women's work at home. Uh, How did you find that? It sounds like something that I would never expect a historian to do. It was a completely brilliant experience. So I met Leonora by chance, actually, at a conference about women in the workplace, which we were both speaking at. And I really admired her work because she's a photographer and artist who's really interested in how images help to shape attitudes or can challenge attitudes. So a lot of her work is about challenging stereotypes around gender and around diversity more broadly. Uh, And she's also very interested in women's history. So we just kind of put our heads together and started thinking about how we might work together and we came up with this idea of recreating the lives of women who've done waged work in the home over the past century or two and this was very much a subject that I was researching at the time because women working at home became a very important aspect of my research into working motherhood more broadly I was just very struck by how many women right through the 19th and 20th century um, were working for pay in their own homes doing very, very different things, but to a large extent in order to, you know, to solve the childcare problem. So we thought, you know, how can we bring this history to life? So we thought about reconstructing images by recruiting some women who themselves either work from home now or have sort of interesting connections with the history of homeworking. And we dressed them up in authentic costume from the era that they were representing. And we produced this sort of beautiful set of portraits, which span from a mid-19th century needlewoman who's in her garret trying to you know, eke out a living by taking in sewing, right through to 
uh, a pioneer lady doctor who's running her own GP practice from uh, her home right through to the end of the 20th century, the mumpreneur. So the final image in the series is of a mumpreneur. And this is the term given to women uh, who began to set up their own businesses in the very end of the 20th century, inspired by their experiences of becoming a mother and very much sort of in line with their lifestyle aspirations as a working parent. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. Is there somewhere that people can go to see these images? The images are all up on Leonora's website. So if you Google Leonora Saunders photographer, you will find her beautiful website where you can see the images. The images have been touring different venues and uh, hopefully we're going to try and find permanent home for them at some point. That would be fantastic. I guess one thing that that really brings to my mind is that you must be quite an expert on how women's perceptions or how social expectations of female success has changed over time. Is that something that you think you could tell us a little bit about? I think that it is increasingly acceptable for women to be ambitious and to talk openly about their ambition. This wasn't always the case. I would suggest that right up until the 1960s, 1970s, it was pretty difficult for women to articulate that kind of drive. And we can see in the history that powerful women, ambitious women, have always been a source of anxiety, particularly where they were looking to encroach upon professional world that had been dominated by men. We can see this in the history of pioneer women medics in the late 19th century, women like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson or Sophia Jack Blake, who were very passionate and committed to medicine as a career for women, but who were also aware that they had to tread very carefully if they were not to uh, provoke a huge amount of hostility on the part of the male medical authorities. I mean, they did provoke hostility anyway. And women wanting to go into medicine really faced a great deal of prejudice and discrimination right into the later um, 20th century. I mean, medical schools actually had quotas uh, on how many women they would take uh, into the post-World War II period. So I think it is quite late in the day that the image of the career woman becomes increasingly normalised and is not seen as a threat and or is not seen as unnatural. But having said that, I think we still find, you know, in our contemporary culture that there are women who provoke women in our high profile public positions of power who do have always been a source of anxiety in the culture because they're not behaving in the way that women, I think, are still socialised to behave. I was very struck by reading an article in uh, the Financial Times a few months ago, which uh, was based on a study which found that women who earn more than their husbands tend to lie about it. <laughs> they tend not to appeal wow. to friends or to colleagues that they earn more than their husbands because there's still this kind of squeamishness, ambivalence, diffidence about women being more powerful than men. And I found that very, very striking that this is still an issue in the 21st century. That's an incredibly sad thing to hear. I don't know about you, but I think 
it's easy to find yourself in a position where as someone who has been really lucky with the access to education that I've had and the career opportunities I've had and I have a very strong sense of equality with my partner to the idea that there would be any hang-ups around that is just so disappointing but I guess it's easy to lose sight of the fact that even you know within society today there's so much variation on these attitudes it's really shocking when you've been doing your research you mentioned a couple of names before has there been any one woman from history who's really struck you as being someone who was like a particular role model for the career woman well i think Elizabeth Garrick Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, I found her very fascinating because I knew her name as one of these famous female firsts. So she was the first British trained woman to have her name appear on the British Medical Register. uh, And she's very well known for that. But I was very struck to discover that she got married in 1870. And she then had three children and she was actually relatively old when she had her children. I think she was 37 when she had her first child. And she continued practicing medicine. And we have in the archive some letters that she wrote to her husband around the time that they're engaged and are about to get married, in which she expresses her very, very strong desire to continue working. And she feels it very, very important that she presents herself as a role model to other women coming up behind her who want to go into medicine. She sees, she recognises that medicine is still this terrain that women need to conquer. And her husband is very supportive of that. And he, he says that he likes the fact that she's a person of distinction and he wants to support her. They have quite a privileged lifestyle. They both have private incomes. He's a successful businessman. So they're able to have servants and they have a very nice house and they have a nursery maid and so on. But nonetheless, I suppose I was quite struck and admiring of Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's determination and her perseverance and how she was willing to do this at a time when, as I say, you know, professional women had to tread very, very carefully indeed without imperiling their respectability as middle-class women. It sounds like she was really, I suppose it's that combination of being incredibly driven and incredibly capable, but also being so lucky to be in the right place at that time where she had those opportunities available to her and her husband was a champion. It's, It's so sad to think that, I guess, relatively recently in history, someone who was in that position would still have had to rely on the permission of their husband or perhaps their father or another male relative to access those opportunities. I guess that's something that we do still see today in a lot of different situations. I think if you look at the history of the dual career marriage, uh, right up to the 1960s and 1970s, there is this sense that these are very peculiar, unusual people who are of adopting a very unconventional way of living and you know there's there's quite a lot of press interest and there are sociologists who start studying this strange phenomenon of the dual career couple in the 1960s and 70s you know this sort of hypersensitivity to the micro dynamics within the marriage the jealousies the resentments the tensions that two partners husband and wife both pursuing career success 
might generate. And there's this sort of wonderful study of graduate women carried out by um, Mira Komarovsky, who's an American sociologist. She really sort of founds the field of women's studies in the US in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and she notes how US uh, college graduates, women, you know, are very kind of careful not to compete too strongly with their male peers. Because if they feel if they compete with their male peers, then their male peers won't want to marry them. This is almost entirely, this is almost identical to uh, something which the Cambridge economist Alfred Marshall says to Beatrice Webb, who was a sort of famous um, female socialist intellectual in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He said this to her, if you compete with us, we won't marry you. This is a warning. This in a sense is a, you know, this horrific possibility that resounds through the decades, right into the late 20th century, perhaps even today, that if we compete too hard with men, then they won't marry us. It's like your social status is being held hostage almost, especially at that time. But I guess even today, it's it's a very cruel thing to say, if you are going to build up and pursue your intellect and your personal and professional interests in a sense that threatens us, we're going to take the element of yourself that, you know, might desire a relationship and that wants to have a social life and to fit in, and we are going to restrict it. So manipulative and cruel, but I suppose it speaks to the, like you say, the level of anxiety that these powerful women were provoking by taking the steps that they did. I think it just reminds us that, you know, women pursue their careers within a broader landscape of gender you know we are living in a world in which men and women are socialized differently we still are and I think that's just something we have to keep in mind when we think about uh, gender equality in the workplace and, and how women can get on in careers. And I guess bringing that thought to the present day how have you found academia for gender balance in the workplace it's an area where we kind of have this idea of you know old men in tweed kind of sitting around in like nice armchairs and discussing things and I think that probably is quite a stale uh, mental image but one that perseveres. I think you're absolutely right there's still a huge amount of unconscious bias at work in the university I think even if you google university professor and hit image you get photographs of exactly what you've described of middle-aged men white men uh, in tweed jackets And I think that women are beginning to push back against that stereotype. There are a huge number of women, I think something like half the academic workforce are female. Um, Women only make up about one in five of the professors, however, which is the sort of top rung of, of the academic career ladder. And I think that there is a tendency for women to progress slower than men in academia, partly as a result of taking career breaks if they do have children. And I think also the longer term responsibilities and demands of of having a family, it means you can't necessarily spend your evenings or weekends writing those paradigm shifting academic papers that are going to make your career. Uh, It's something which, of course, fathers still have to deal with as well. But we know that women do more unpaid work in the home than men. Also, just to kind of go back to that point about socialization, academia requires you to perform a certain level of intellectual self-confidence. It's 
partly about making people take you seriously, getting people excited about your research, presenting yourself as someone who's doing really groundbreaking work, someone who, you know, when they stand up and open their mouths, they're authoritative, they know what they're talking about. You know, that's what academia, in a sense, is sort of sort of encouraging or asking you to do. And I'm afraid to say, I think that men are socialised to do that in a way that women are not. And I know that's a sweeping generalisation, but when I'm observing candidates for jobs giving presentations, I think women still find it difficult to blow their own trumpets and to talk up the value and significance of their scholarship and to present themselves in that way. And I think that race is also a big issue there. I think if you're a woman of colour, it's doubly hard to push back against that unconscious bias of what a successful academic uh, looks like. Yeah, I'm privileged that I haven't had to worry about the racial element of um, unconscious bias, but I've experienced the um, issues around being socialised against self-promotion as a woman, and I've seen it in others. And yeah, it's something that you really do recognise, and I think if you're primed to look out for it, suddenly you look around society and you you know walk around the gendered toy aisle of of the shop and you think oh my gosh like why are we telling these young girls that they want to play with the soft harmless things and the boys are going to be you know doing all these exciting you know loud shouting big yourself Mm. up games really frustrating and I, i think that the solution is not necessarily to imitate the male behavior i don't think that's the way forward for women. I think actually the challenge is to develop your own voice and to using that voice. So it's not a case of of strutting around and trying to mimic uh, that male academic style, but finding a way to be professional, to be authoritative, to take yourself seriously and to project yourself as someone worth listening to. You can do that by developing your own voice Um, and staying true to yourself I think. I definitely agree it's something that I imagine would seem like a really daunting prospect at that very very early stage in your career how would you recommend that someone just starting out in academia or any other industry tries to seek opportunities to develop their voice or any things that you can think of that would help them to do that? Sure I think Getting lots of opportunities to do some kind of public speaking, even if it's just talking about your research for 10 minutes to a group of other postgraduates, that can be a really good place to start. Standing up in front of a room, talking about what makes your research interesting, exciting, significant. After that, you need to start going to conferences and giving papers where you're presenting your research to other people in the field and that can be quite daunting but it's really important to do and I think getting lots of feedback from people that you trust so asking friends colleagues your supervisor to give you open and frank notes on you know what you did well and how you can improve and I think that the more that you can do that then the more you can begin to work on those skills which will stand you in very good stead as you move forward in your career. The other thing you can do is identify people, senior people who you really admire and who who you think speak really well and are inspiring 
and bring people together and try to work out what it is that they do that enables them to do that. And I think if you can, you know, if you can specify that and then think about how can I emulate those really positive behaviours, how can I be more like X, um, that's something that you can do as well. That sounds like an amazing tip that would translate really well into loads of different aspects of people's lives as well, you know, outside of trying to find your voice. I think having a, a really positive set of role models who you can identify their strengths and try and model your development on that would be really powerful yeah absolutely do you have any advice for someone who might be considering going down the path of academia at all I would advise them to be very clear-eyed from the beginning about the academic job market there are lots of really talented brilliant young historians just in my field I'm just thinking about my field and there aren't enough permanent jobs for all those brilliant researchers and so it's very important to think about where else your PhD might take you. Obviously, doing a PhD, you have to be really excited about the intellectual problem that you're exploring, whatever it is. And you have to be committed to it and see it as something that's worthwhile in itself and has intrinsic value. But of course, it is also a training for academia, but also it could be a training for other things as well. So research skills that you develop, the public speaking skills that you develop, your ability to write, because PhD involves a huge amount of writing and rewriting and organising your thoughts and trying to express your ideas and express quite complex problems eloquently and with real clarity and precision. All of those things can take you into many, many other professions uh, beyond academia. And so it's worth just thinking that through if you do enroll on a PhD project just think about what are the kind of the landscape of possibilities at the end of my doctorate and are there things that I can be doing to find out more about those careers elsewhere you know could I go and volunteer in a museum for a few months could I go and do uh, some kind of work experience at an archive for example um, could I find out about digital humanities about how I could translate my skills into some kind of big data context. So there are lots and lots of different things that you could be thinking about as you're doing your doctorate. And I think it's just about being open to those possibilities. You know, however brilliant you are and how brilliant your research is, you have to be open to the possibility that the academic job market may not deliver. Helen, I've been really grateful for you joining us today. Thank you so much for giving us all of these amazing pieces of advice. It's um, a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. <laughs> I'm so, so glad that you joined us. Obviously, your book, The Double Lives, A Working History of Motherhood, is coming out on April 16th. And I'm guessing people will be able to buy that in all good bookstores and online. And online. And for anyone who's self-isolating, it is also available as an ebook. Uh, I mean, it's published at this slightly strange time when uh, we are sort of in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. But I hope very much that history can, you know, offer some kind of refuge to people who perhaps, you know, don't want to be reading about the coronavirus all day long. So, yes, it is very much, it will very much be available in all sorts of formats to those who would like to read it. Fantastic. And definitely a great distraction from all of the things happening outside that we can't go and see and interact and with. And that we can't control. Exactly. 
Helen, what's the best way for listeners to keep up to date with your research? Do you do social media? I do. I'm on Twitter and my handle is at Historian Helen. And I have a web page at the University of Cambridge History Faculty website, which lists all everything that I've published recently and all the, the broader things that I'm interested in. So you can absolutely you know, find out more about what I'm doing there. Amazing. I really encourage all of our listeners to go and check it out. Helen's bio is fantastic. And I think if you can get your hands on any of the stuff that she's written, it's definitely a good time to add it to your reading list. Thank you, everybody, for listening and goodbye until next time. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify and Anchor and make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter for the latest updates. We're at stride underscore women. See you soon.